Welcome to the latest episode of podcast for emergency medicine education and training within the Illawarra and Shoalhaven, or Cheap and Cheerful podcast. Today I thought we might talk about something that many of you may have seen within the system in the last few months, and is an attempt to actually pull together a whole lot of uncertainty around the assessment and management of acute coronary syndromes in particular, but particularly in relation to how you risk stratify those patients and how you interpret the use of troponins and ECGs in that sort of setting. What I'm talking about is a document put out by the Acute Care Institute for New South Wales Health, the Pathway for Acute Coronary Syndrome Assessment. It came out in around October of this year and has been progressively making its way through the state system and has certainly been accepted and adopted by, within the Illawarra. It's an a great piece of work. It's been widely consulted with emergency physicians, physicians, clinicians generally, the, uh, to make sure that what is there represents the best synthesis of the available research and information on how to approach someone who presents with what you perceive as an acute coronary syndrome. The fact that it's called a pathway for acute coronary syndrome assessment is a major advance on its predecessors, which were the chest pain pathways. Those pathways really weren't for assessment of generic chest pain and had the limitation that they tended to force patients into a box for acute coronary syndrome when they presented with an episode of chest pain, irrespective of what the underlying cause might well have been. It became step one, rule out acute coronary syndrome first, almost irrespective of what the problem you were dealing with turned out to be. What are the principles to this new pathway? Well, the first is the same as in previous pathways, and that is determine whether or not this is a STEMI. The second step is if there's no STEMI present, then what's the level of risk that this is in fact an acute coronary syndrome? And that risk assessment is built around, number one, a clinical assessment, first and foremost, layering on top of that a troponin risk assessment, and finally an ECG risk assessment, and then taking all of that information and synthesizing a management plan for the particular patient in front of you. I'm going to work through each of these steps, focusing on the differences that are evident in this guideline relative to um, previous iterations. So I'm not going to cover every little bit of information that's within it. The first one is, is it a STEMI? The, and here is one of the first significant changes, and that comes down to what are the criteria for a STEMI? The ST criteria have changed in the sense that they have adopted, uh, in a formal sense, one that was actually proposed back in 2012 when the third universal definition of myocardial infarction and has been reinforced again in 2018 uh, in the fourth universal definition of myocardial infarction. And that relates to ST criteria um, that are different according to uh, gender and according to age, as well as where you're looking within the ECG. It also relates to changes in how we approach left bundle branch block and one or two other issues um, that we'll get into in detail in a tick. Let's start with the ST segment changes. According to standard criteria, now a STEMI is identified if there is ST elevation of greater than or equal to one millimeter in any two contiguous leads, except in V2 and V3. 
If we're looking at V2 and V3, it requires that for men over the age of 40, that their SD segment elevation is greater than 2 millimetres. If they're under the age of 40, then it's going to be 2.5 millimetres. For women, it's going to be 1.5 millimetres, irrespective of age. So that's a significant difference to the sort of one millimetre in limb leads and two millimetres in chest leads that has been utilised in the past as a measure of convenience. So just to reiterate that, if it's a male, it's involved and you're looking at V2 and V3 for ST elevation, if they're over the age of 40, it requires that they actually have ST elevation of two millimetres. If they're under the age of 40, it requires ST elevation of greater than 2.5 millimetres. And if it's female, at any age, it requires an ST elevation of 1.5 millimetres to meet the criteria for a STEMI. Presuming, of course, that the clinical picture that's come into play with this is suggested this person's actually having a STEMI. Because you have to consider in any of those circumstances, are there alternative causes for this person actually having ST elevation? And they're the classic ones, pericarditis, myocarditis, intracranial hemorrhage, left bundle brace block. So those things have to be considered before going straight down the pathway of ACS. The other slight, in some ways, change that's come into play is when, with regard to left bundle branch block, now it's a case of if the patient presents with a clinical picture suggestive of uh, myocardial infarction and their ECG shows left bundle branch block, irrespective of age, plus they have hemodynamic instability, then that person is going to be considered a STEMI equivalent. If they have left bundle branch block and they're hemodynamically stable and they have scarbrosa criteria, modified scarbrosa criteria in this case, uh, that are positive, then that patient will also be considered a STEMI. What are scarbosa criteria? Okay, so in answer to that question, I'm going to describe what those criteria are, but I'm also going to include uh, with this particular podcast a link to Life in the Fast Lane, which gives ECG examples and diagrammatic representations, which are much easier to read. So the modified scarborosa criteria are that if you have greater than or equal to one lead with greater than or equal to one millimetre of concordant ST elevation, so what that means is if you have a positive QRS complex, the dominant vector is positive, and you have ST elevation in association with that in that lead of greater than or equal to one millimetre, that is the equivalent of a STEMI. If you have greater than or equal to one lead of V1 to V3, where you have greater than, greater than or equal to one millimetre of concordant ST depression, so usually in V1 to V3, the dominant vector of the QRS complex is negative. If you have ST depression in any of those leads, V1 to V3, that is greater than or equal to one millimetre, that is also a STEMI equivalent, presuming again that you actually have the clinical picture that's pointing in that direction. The final criterion is where the modified bit comes in from the original Scarbosa criteria, and that is if you have greater than or equal to one lead anywhere with greater than or equal to one millimetre of ST elevation and proportionately excessive discordant ST elevation as defined by greater than or equal to 25% of the depth of the preceding S wave. So what we're talking about here is a predominantly negative QRS complex with ST elevation that is greater than or equal to 25% of the preceding S wave. That's the three modified Scarbosa criteria, which will give you a positive for a STEMI in the setting of left bundle branch block. The other two changes that come into play are 
posterior myocardial infarction. So you're looking primarily for ST depression uh, in V1 and V2. And you will, if you see that, then ideally you should do posterior leads. And again, I'm going to refer you to a link in uh, Life in the Fast Lane, which will give you a much better description of that than I can give you. And the final one is de Winter waves, which are classically described as upsloping ST depression, particularly in V2, V3, uh, in association with tall peaked T waves. And a further criterion often expected in association with that is uh, ST elevation in AVR. And again, that'll be a third link that I'll have um, set up with this particular podcast for you to actually look at from Life in the Fast Lane, which will do much better at describing that with pictures associated. So that's STEMI. So just to recover that, there are ST elevation criteria, and they relate primarily to ST elevation of greater than or equal to one millimetre in E2 contiguous leads, except in V2 and V3, where you are looking for ST elevation of greater amounts relative to whether it's a male or a female, and whether that male is under or over 40 Left bundle branch block, hemodynamically unstable. Left bundle branch block with positive Scarbosa criteria. Um, a posterior myocardial infarction with positive posterior leads or a De Winters wave formation on the ECG. None of those things being present, the, um, then we don't have a STEMI. The next question comes in, do we have a di differential diagnosis? Is this, in fact, acute coronary syndrome or not? If our feeling is that it is acute coronary syndrome, then we move on to the risk assessment. That risk assessment is first and foremost carried out on a clinical basis. The first question is, are there high risk criteria? And if the answer to that is yes, then irrespective of what their ECG is showing or what their troponin level might be, that is, even if those things are currently negative, that person will require admission and formal workup. So what's going to create or determine whether this person is high risk? Persistent ongoing symptoms, syncope in association with their chest pain, a systolic blood pressure less than 90, presuming, of course, that that's not their normal, acute onset left ventricular failure in association with their chest pain, associated significant arrhythmias, second degree, third degree heart block, VT. There are other arrhythmias that can arise, which can become a little less easy to differentiate. For example, the person who presents with SVT or atrial fibrillation and has some chest discomfort, more commonly than not, um, that's a case of the arrhythmia resulting in the chest discomfort rather than vice versa. And far more commonly than not, is not actually an acute coronary syndrome per se. And finally, the final clinical uh, thing to consider is that they had within the last six months an MI, a PCI or bypass. If none of those high-risk criteria are present, then the next question to ask yourself is, is this a low-risk circumstance? And for a low-risk circumstance to exist, the person needs to have all of age less than 45, symptom-free, a non-ischemic-looking ECG, atypical symptoms, and no known coronary artery disease. You can use alternative methods for determining low-risk, and those alternative methods include things like the heart score or EDAX, which is the one that's actually incorporated with the PAXA document, if you want to actually have a look at that. And again, I've included a link to the document itself through ACI, uh, but I'm not going to go into the details of those. 
there's no strong evidence to suggest that using any of those scores is any better than using your own clinical judgment around these particular circumstances, but they are fairly well documented and to some extent validated scores that can be useful if you're wondering, is this or isn't this? I'm not really sure. Uh, it can help you think through the steps and the important pieces of information you need to help you come to that determination. If they are, in fact, low risk and fulfil those low risk criteria, um, then they're out. That means they, you can move on to managing them as though they are not an acute coronary syndrome at this particular point in time. So if we have no high risk and no low risk, that puts us into the intermediate risk group. Now, that's quite a large group that we end up dealing with in the emergency department and working out which is the best pathway forward for them. So this is where more almost new criteria come into play. There's been a fair degree of variability and confusion around troponin, particularly high-sensitivity troponins, in relation to precisely what the timeframes should be and what we should consider positive uh, in relation to, to identifying um, an acute coronary syndrome. Those timeframes have been have varied anywhere from one hour to six hours uh, in between sampling efforts, whether it's time from onset of pain to time for, or time from presentation to the emergency department, what the particular thresholds might be, how much of a change is required. So there's been uh, variable amounts brought into play. This gives a fair degree of clarification to it. It's not an absolute thing in the sense that there may still be some variability allowed in that process, and there's certainly evidence to support different approaches. But the approach that's put forward in PAXA is highly supportable in, with the available literature. What it points out in PAXA is that your time for uh, sampling is going to be time zero and time two hours, time zero being the time that the patient presents and then a sample taken again two hours subsequently. What you're looking for within the Shoalhaven Illawarra region for the lab sampled troponins, not point of care but lab sampled, is a positive result being a result greater than 14 nanograms per litre. Uh, you have to consider an association with that, however, whether or not there's potentially other causes for that to be elevated. Someone who's got a uh, long-standing history of congestive cardiac failure, someone who's got a long-standing history of chronic renal failure, someone who's presenting uh, with a setting, for example, of significant sepsis. Lots of reasons why troponin might be elevated and a number of reasons why it might be elevated in a chronic sense. And a number of those are actually listed within the PAXA document. The Next key is the second sample to primarily look for a rise. The document also says a fall, but falls tend to relate more to people who are late presentations rather than acute presentations. So most commonly we're looking for a rise, and that rise we have in the past looked at 20% rises, 30% rises over the two-hour time frame, 50% uh, rises at some stages in the past. What we're now looking at is an absolute value rise. And that absolute value rise or fall uh, is considered significant if it's greater than five nanograms per litre at the two-hour mark. So just to repeat that, a positive is a level greater than 14 nanograms per litre. A positive delta, a change in the troponin value after two hours of greater than five nanograms per litre is considered positive. So it's going to be much more sensitive than the percentage rises we've looked for, probably by the same token, less specific, but that's now become the criterion. 
if you are using a point of care testing process, then you're not really looking for a delta per se. You're looking for a sample to be done at zero hours and at six hours because this is a standard sensitivity test and you're not looking at a delta process. So you're looking for the crossing of a threshold. Okay, next step in the process. So we've looked at a clinical risk assessment. We've looked at a troponin risk assessment. The third step in the process, the, the dynamic ECG changes, really that hasn't changed from previous guidelines or pathways. And then the final phase is to take all that information, sum it up, and come up with a plan of attack for managing this particular patient, whether it be admit, discharge, choice of medications to be given in the process. All of those things remain pretty much uh, as they have done without any significant change except in the group whom we are sending home. In the past, we've been fairly strictly guided by the guidelines to try and ensure that some form of stress testing, cardiology follow-up, whether it be a, an exercise stress test or a nuclear medicine study of some form, be carried out. Um, the guidelines are no longer so rigid around that because there's quite a reasonable amount of evidence now to say that it really doesn't change the outcome for the patient or alter their risk profile by uh, sending them home and having them do a stress test within that sort of time frame. So what is now suggested is that if you have someone who you are considering to be intermediate risk, then that person should, if they're going home, be seen by a GP, physician, or cardiologist within a week. If it's someone who you have determined is low risk, the, then that person should be sent to a GP for follow-up but there's no set time frame for doing that. My suggestion would be that they should still get followed up within a week. My final comment on that, which isn't actually included necessarily in the guideline, is that if you have come to the point of an assessment of that particular patient and determined that they are safe to go home, it's very important, unless you have defined another cause for their pain, not to try and give them a tag for that pain the, to, and not to try and say you don't have a heart problem, you don't have an acute coronary syndrome, but to send them home with the idea that um, they are in fact in a low-risk group but not a no-risk group. In most cases, they are now down at the same level of risk as anybody else walking around the community, but if their symptoms persist or extend, get worse, then they should still come back to the emergency department for reassessment until an obvious cause has in fact been defined. That's the safest way to prevent yourself getting into trouble with issues around sending home patients inappropriately. It's also, more importantly, um, the safest way to manage the patients and not to send them home with a relatively false sense of reassurance. So there you have it, a fairly well-constructed and sensible guideline for assessing someone who you clinically think has an acute coronary syndrome or is likely to have an acute coronary syndrome. Fairly straightforward steps to follow and a document which, despite all that, is still only a guideline. So if there are things that worry you about applying it in the fashion that it suggests you should do, if your sense of a patient is that their risk is greater than the step-by-step -step process is suggesting, then by all means, feel free to step outside the guideline and carry that patient forward. Uh, and if in doubt, seek a second senior opinion. And that's it for this time around.